Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Good evening, I'm William Hosea. Welcome to Bring It On, and we are a multiple award-winning show celebrating over 12 years as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting African Americans. And good evening. My name is Roberta, and on today's broadcast, you'll hear our perspective on what's relevant in the African American world of news and local events of interest, all in the next hour on Bring It On. But first, by 1874, what has been known as the Colored School opened at 6th and Washington Streets to serve African-American elementary students of Bloomington. An 1869 law had mandated education of colored children with a separate enumeration and separate schools supported with tax revenue within the common school system. Before 1869, education of African-Americans was generally not within the common school system. A cursory look at at a historical timeline of public education presented by the Race Forward website was created by the Center for Racial Justice Innovation, and it sheds interesting light upon the African-American public education. It appears that after the Civil War and with the legal end of slavery, African-Americans in the South made alliances with white Republicans, can can you believe it, (laughs) to push for many political changes, including the first time rewriting state constitutions to guarantee free public education. In practice, however, white children benefited more than black children. Here tonight to share scholarly insight into the emergence of the colored schools in America is uh, Professor Emeritus Dr. Audrey T. McCluskey. She is former faculty member at Indiana University in the Department of African and African American Diaspora Studies, and she's also the past director of the Neil Marshall Black Culture Center. She's also past director of graduate studies within the Department of African and African American Diaspora Studies. Dr. McCluskey is here tonight, and I would be remiss if I didn't take a moment to share with everybody that her um, latest, greatest work, A Forgotten Sisterhood, is actually out on paperback. The title of her book is A Forgotten Sisterhood, Pioneering Black Women Educators and Activists in the Jim Crow South. We'll talk a little bit more about Dr. McCluskey's book in just a little bit, but welcome to Bring it on, Dr. McCluskey. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah, and we are happy to have you, Dr. McCluskey. So starting off, uh, sounds like I just lost my mic. Starting off, okay, we're good. Um, are you, can you put the colored schools into historical perspective for us? Okay, that's a big question, but I think it has to begin at the beginning. And that's when Africans were imported into this country. And they were imported into this country. And one reason, uh, the rationale that was given was that because they were uncivilized and they were uneducable. 
And so with that narrative, it then allowed them to be used as ch chattel. And even though they were said to be uneducable, there were laws passed in the South, in those slave states, that forbade African Americans, African people, from education. So you could be actually sent to jail, you could be whipped if you were caught reading a book. Even white people could be jailed for teaching blacks numbers, letters, any kind of education. And to me, that's the kind of inheritive aspect that is contradictory. Because if they're uneducable, why do you need to go to the extreme mm -hmm. of outlawing education? It doesn't make sense. But there are a lot of fallacies in the slaveholders' mentality about African Americans. So it starts with that. So it starts with the idea that this is, it starts with the idea that this is something that is prohibited. So African Americans then who wanted to be educated, which meant that most of them did, they had to find it through hook and crook and by devious means. And what are some of those hook and crooks? Well, for example, take Frederick Douglass. We all know the narrative of Frederick Douglass where he talks about how he escaped. But before he escaped, he learned to read. And he learned by that hook and crook. And one thing he did was to bait little white boys who knew how to read and write by saying, I bet you can't tell me that letter. And the boy <laughs> would, of course, I know that letter, and he would write it. Can you think of that process, though, just how determined he was mm -hmm. to go through that? Mm -hmm. So that was one way that he learned by hook and crook mm -hmm. to read and write. And he said, and I think this is in the very important, Frederick Douglass said that, if you if you teach a black person to read or to write, it's incompatible with slavery. Hmm. Now, you don't need to be educated to know that you are oppressed. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying what Frederick Douglass said, that once he began to read and to write and be able to see the world in a different way, it's just no way that he could not run away. And so that's one of the ways. Right. If you want to I have lots of examples. <laughs> but one that I'm really, really happy to share about uh, uh, share with you is during slavery how black people educated themselves for freedom. Mm -hmm. And one was through the use of midnight schools. And these were schools that the they weren't really schools. They were kind of informal ways to teach blacks to read and write. Many blacks wanted to read and write so that they could read the Bible, but most right. of them wanted to read and write so that they could f have their own freedom papers and forge the, the master's name on it. And so once they ran away, if, some, if they were stopped by the, the uh, bounty hunters, or they were called patterolers back mm -hmm. then, they could show those papers. And of course, the they thought a lot of the uh, patterolers couldn't read or write. So if they saw that, <laughs> these were white men who did not own slave, but identified very strongly with slavery. And so that was a path to freedom. So that correlation between education, literacy, and freedom mm -hmm. was just f there from the very beginning. Yeah. Okay, let, let me jump in there for a mm -hmm. minute. You said something that I found very interesting. So the some of the workers who were enforcing slavery for right. the slave owners 
couldn't read either. Right. So because there was I, no education they're, system, they're, they're I could take a piece either. of paper with just some scribble on it and tell them. These well, are, I mean, you you wouldn't want a chance that you would want to. Well, you know, I don't they'd mean li- literal scribble. Oh, but okay. If they couldn't read, then it wouldn't take much to to convince them that that. Well, it had to that, sort of look authentic. You yeah. know, they've seen books before, so <laughs> yeah. So. So Miller Granson, who was a slave enslaved woman on a plantation in Maryland, she had learned through her mistress how to read and write, and it was the idea that each one teach one. If was you it learn, illegal at the time? Oh yeah, oh yeah, it was always illegal. It was always. Remember, I said at the very beginning yeah. that you could go to jail, you could get flogged. You know, even white women could go to jail. So this was something that was. At some point, it was no longer illegal, though. Yeah, but we're talking about during slavery. Okay, it okay, was always okay. illegal during slavery. In the thick of slavery. In the thick of slavery, right. And so Miller Granson, and she she is remembered because of her ingenuity. After she learned to read and write, in her little cabin around midnight when all everybody was asleep, she would invite into her cabin 12 enslaved people to teach them to read and write while someone stood at the door with a candle or some kind of lamp to make sure that no one was coming. And she took in 12 because she was a very religious woman. She was really replicating 12 disciples. The, oh. the disciples, the <clears throat> disciples. And so she was giving them, teaching them how to read and write so they could forge their freedom papers. Why would a white woman of privilege take that kind of risk back during those times? There were complicated motives, complicated motives. Some of them, you, you heard the, the idea of the plantation being like home. You know, it was really not home for African-Americans. You know. But some white women did feel some kind of attachment to their enslaved people, particularly ones who worked around the house or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so they may have had religious reasons. There are really lots of different reasons. Well, they could have just But seen this them was as not, people. I don't want you to think that this was some kind of movement on the part mm-hmm. of white women. No. <laughs> they were few and far between, but there were those who did this. Yeah. And, well, well getting back to the, the colored school yes. in Bloomington, I mean, that even that conversation is um i want to get back to that that part of it but can you tell us a little bit since we're talking about white women and advocacy and allies how does that how does emma her name is emma thurl uh thurnborough yeah. yes mm-hmm. it, and can you tell us a little bit about what her role was in making sure that documentation she was very important, and I think her first book was published in the late, maybe 1959, and then there was a, a reprint of it in early 90s, mm-hmm. I think. Um, I don't know her. I didn't know her personally. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know Frances Gilliam, who was a local okay. uh, school teacher here. Mm-hmm. Uh, she and Mr. Gilliam, her husband, were very important for the NACP. And she wrote the first kind of local history. Oh, okay. The okay. local history. I think Emma Emma's book, Miss Thornburg's book, was more of the state of oh, Indiana, I and so there is okay. there is a difference. Mm-hmm. One focused on the state and some of the laws, mm-hmm. and Miss Gilliam talked about what happened locally okay. in Bloomington, including. Uh, documenting the first black teachers who were hired and very local kinds of concerns in terms of the African-American community and schooling. 
Mm -hmm. Well, what I wanted to ask you, Dr. McCluskey, is given that Indiana has historically been such a homogenous state, what, how, how, what is the significance of sort of making sure there's not, there were not a lot of black people here, I guess is what I'm trying to say. If there were not so many black people here, like you would have found in Cleveland or Dayton or in other places, why would it have been so important to keep, um, to keep such a clear and important um, class and social line between, you know. You're getting to the heart of a very kind of uh, philosophical Mm -hmm. question. Okay, I'm out. (laughs) But no, it's it's simple, but it it has to do with a sensibility Mm -hmm. of kind of racial privilege and white supremacy. Mm -hmm. And that was not really confined to the South. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so you didn't have to be in the South to be racist. (laughs) Right, okay. And so the narrative of white supremacy the narrative of white supremacy is what most people, most white people, even the ones who were for abolition, mm-hmm. they still did not believe in the equality of the races. And, and so that's, still... that's the kind of complication that we have with this thing called race. And mm-hmm. I was going to say, you still don't have to be in the South to be racist. In fact, you know, Indiana, well, you, you mentioned the laws mm-hmm. that the Indi- Indiana legislature passed whereby they dictated that no tax money could go to support black schools. And they also said black and mulatto. That was a term they liked to use back in the day. <laughs> and so and in ni- 1949 was the first law that was passed to not have schools based on race in the state of Indiana, 1949. And that was just a few years before Brown versus the Board of Education. Right, right. So even though Indiana was not a slave state, Indiana did not have that kind of history, it still had those policies that made black uh, citizens second class or no class. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, for our listening audience, we are speaking with Dr. Audrey McCluskey, who is an IU Emeritus faculty member, past director of the Neil Marshall Black Culture Center, and past director of graduate studies for the Department of African American and African Diaspora Studies. So, Dr. McCluskey, at some point, you know, everything came together and all the planets lined up, and uh, it was okay for black folk to receive an education. Uh, What was that, 1869, when the law was passed? Mm -hmm. So what was the catalyst that kind of set that in motion? Why was it okay, even after all of that, uh, uh, through slavery, why was it, well, I won't say suddenly, Mm -hmm. but how how did it get to that point? Through well-fought battles with some white allies, but also through massive self-reliance on the part of African-Americans. They were always, always, as I said from the very beginning, equating their freedom with education. And so most of the advances that blacks have made Uh have been grounded in that idea of getting education and education to some, like the women I talk about in my book, Uh meant getting educated for equality. You mentioned uh, white allies back Mm -hmm. then. Mm-hmm. Were those, do you think those people were of the same mind 
as uh, white Americans today who advocate for equality and social justice? That's a difficult question because I can't get in the mind of how people act and why they act in certain ways. I, I talked about white women who actually risked a lot to teach yeah. enslaved people. And so the risk was always there. And it, you could also be called a race trader and all those other kinds of things. Of course, uh, the social environment has changed to a certain extent. We've, we have had and we would certainly like to go back to that, a black president. <laughs> not too long uh, ago. Not too long ago. It seems like eons ago. But uh, sometimes it's this personal motivation that people, people understand justice, even if they don't practice it. And so people who understand justice sometimes want to act on it, on their understanding. And so I think our brother, white brothers and sisters, some of them are so inclined, doesn't mean that they often believe in racial equality, but they do believe that justice means at least giving people a chance to get ahead. Yeah. Can you speak to, um, and I apologize, I don't know the literature very well on this, but could you speak to some of the better um, uh, so-called colored schools in the United States after civil rights, uh, after the Civil War, but before 1900 or so? Okay, but I think I need to give a little bit of background okay. just to Please talk, do. just to talk of, about how that evolution mm -hmm. took place. Mm -hmm. As I said at the very beginning, blacks were always inclined towards education because they equated that with freedom. Mm -hmm. And so the very first colored schools actually were Sabbath schools. Sabbath meaning Sunday, Sunday meaning church. And so as the black church has always been the center of gravity for African American communities you would expect then that educational initiatives would take place in the church. And that's why they call them Sabbath schools, because those who had learned to read and write, each one teach one, actually gathered on Sunday, and this is right after the Civil War, in their small little churches and taught reading and writing. So the, this was self-reliant, totally self-reliant schools built by, as churches, by black people, some white allies, but certainly the initiative mm -hmm. was on the part of African Americans. So that's something that I think is not in the popular culture. Mm -hmm. The idea that uh, they always blacks always had to have white people interfering in order to advance themselves. No, that's not the truth. They often had allies, but the initiative was by them. So that's the first type of school. Okay. The second type. The of Sabbath. The, the Sabbath. Yeah, okay. The, the more formal school, although it was informal, it wasn't a school system. The second came at the end of the Civil War when the Freedmen's Bureau was established. And the Freedmen's Bureau operated during Reconstruction period from the end of the Civil War to from 1865 roughly to about 1877. So it was a short period of time. Yeah. And during that time, that's when most of the schools the Spellmans, the, the Morehouses, it, those schools were established. And that was certainly with white help. But oftentimes they started by, with, with schools like the ones I talk about in my book, where women and men, of course, we all know about Booker T. Washington and Tuskegee, mm -hmm. but we don't know about Mary McLeod Bethune. We don't know about Charlotte Hawkins Brown. And these are the women that I cover. 
mm-hmm. in this book mm-hmm. because they were parallel to Booker T. Washington. We know about him. We know about Tuskegee. We know about Hampton, but we don't know about Bethune-Cookman. We don't know about Palmer Memorial Institute. We don't know about Payne College. And so these are the ones that I try to uh, uncover. But the idea is during that particular period of time and up until the beginning of the 20th century, there was a great school movement. Blacks, as well as some white allies, were establishing these schools. Mm -hmm. And Howard University, you know, you talk about the the touchstone of schools, and that's my alma mater as well, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, was one of those that was, and it's named after actually the uh, president, or maybe he was the founder, or I don't remember exactly his title, but kind of the equivalent of a CEO today. His name was Oliver Howard, uh-huh. mm. and he was a general in the um, in the Civil War, and he headed the Freedmen's Bureau, which was in charge of mm. establishing mm-hmm. some of these schools. And so, he then got the initiative going for Howard University, and so it's named after a white man. Who so, did you lead the protests when they wanted to put Lee Atwater on the board of directors at Howard? I know you remember that. Oh, of course, of course. The <laughs> now, students did it too. I was there during the time when we said Ungawa Black Power. <laughs> <laughs> the name of the book is A Forgotten Sisterhood Pioneering Black Women Educators and Activists in the Jim Crow South. You could get Dr. McCluskey's book um, from the publisher, which is uh, Roman Littlefield, or from Amazon. Now, I want to ask you another question. Um, so after the emergence of colored schools, and, and they were cropping up across the country, yes. is that right? Yeah. So did they form some type of alliance to support each other and to advocate for each other and, and to further the cause of education yes. for black folk? Yes. Was there a name? Did that alliance have a name or was it Sometimes just Sometimes it was informal? informal, you know, but there was a a, a black collegiate uh, association and there was also a black counterpart to like the National Education Association. Mm-hmm. They would just put a C in there for color. Okay. <laughs> <You know? Yeah. laughs> just like with the Bar Association, you know, the National Bar and then the National Black Bar Association. So th- there was a, always a there, there. Yeah, exactly. So right? blacks did organize. Not only did they organize to build schools, they organized for these social mm-hmm. uh, I- I- uh, institutions such as the ones we are talking about. The NACP, uh, you know, all of those were started back in the early 20th century. So, so would... So would a little school in little old Bloomington, Indiana, draw um, students who are studying to be teachers or instructors? You to mean Indiana, to Indiana to, University to, or no, where? To, to, to the, the little elementary school in Bloomington, whether it was the Banneker Center or whatever its name would have been. Would students who were away at Spelman or away at Howard or away at some of the other historically black institutions, would they have come here to teach? I can't answer that question directly, but I can tell you, and I was surprised at this, that there are more black people called colored people at the time in this area of Indiana, in southern Indiana than I thought. Oh, really? Like in Richmond Township, I found that there were colored schools and colored people. And oftentimes, unless there was a, a critical mass of people, one or two blacks in a community, they could kind of slide into the white schools mm-hmm. because, well, you know, well, one, they or were two not, is not one or two, but if they came in droves. Yeah. <laughs> so that was a surprising part of Indiana history for me. 
-hmm. is that black people were not only located in Gary and all those places, but uh, throughout Indiana and even in southern Indiana and those small rural counties that we don't think that uh, there are any black people. Mm-hmm. So there are one or two maybe teachers there. Uh, okay. Some of this is not adequately documented now. Right. Yeah. I guess that was more of a, a rhetorical question. Right. It, just thinking about what 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 the pathways were mm-hmm. for those for those teachers that mm-hmm. were studying to be teachers. Right. R- yeah. Roberta has never asked a rhetorical question before. <laughs> Can I tell you just one more school because I was telling you about the three types of schools, colored schools early on, and I think Uh I talked about the Sabbath school and the Freedmen Bureau schools. But also there was a movement on the part of African Americans to found a universal school system. And they were the pioneers in the South because in the South, particularly in Georgia and some of those really, Alabama and all those states, as I said, the patty rollers who were searching down the runaways, they couldn't read or write either. And that's because there was no education system for them. You know, the rich uh, slave owners, you know, they could have private tutors for their school, for their kids, et cetera. But these people who were the, the enforcers of slavery, they often, you know, were illiterate. But blacks couldn't settle for that. They know they knew the importance of education. So they started the rudimentary part of public, of what we call universal education, in many of these states. Wow. And so that's a revelation, you know. And then uh, after blacks started learning to read and write, well, these people say, well, why can't I read or write, you know. And so that made a demand, created a demand for a public school system. And it was because of the initiative of African-Americans who had been once slaves and wanted their kids to learn how to read and write and to have a better chance at having the American dream at that point. Is it true that uh, West Virginia disbanded uh, their public education system because they didn't want it to be yes. integrated. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> so, okay, what can you tell us about the colored schools in Bloomington? Now, that for me at least, there was some confusion between the colored school on 6th and Washington and then the Banneker Center on, uh, on West 7th. I, I had the two confused at one point. Okay, um, the one on 6th Street, the one that we rededicated the right. the marker. Um, where, where you spoke so eloquently that well, day. Well, thank you. That was torn down, mm-hmm. and the students then went to Banneker was being built. Okay. And, you know, Banneker was named after the the black hero, the astrologer, uh, astronomer, et cetera. Uh, but while it was being built... Black students, and this is from my from my research, were actually educated on college and third in something they called the old armory. Oh. And so after, um, while Banneker was being built or for colored school, for colored children, uh, they were educated. I don't remember how exactly long, but it wasn't long. But when Banneker was completed, I read that the students actually marched from the armory to Banneker. And they had a grand opening of Banneker. And so that was, a, and you see the Banneker Center now, how, you know, it's now, it, it was then um, West Side Center after they abolished the, the colored school system. So it's been through a lot of iterations. And Banneker Center is how old? Banneker Center, 
40. Over 100 years, right? Over 100 years, yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah, and hopefully they've kept up with the infrastructure. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned uh, a rededication ceremony for the colored school marker. <clears throat> and not not every, and I was there that day, but not everybody knows about that. Can you tell us a little bit more about the uh, why it had to be rededicated? Mm-hmm. Well, <clears throat> some of my colleagues uh in the history history society historical society here may disagree because on their website they said it was damaged that the marker was damaged there are two markers there two historical right. markers here one is for the carnegie library which came after the colored school which was not damaged which was not damaged at all well yes so rather than saying that uh, in in mild language that you know some kind of force of nature, you know, struck <laughs> struck the, the, the uh the marker. We think that it was damaged deliberately because the other one was not. Now I can't prove it in court, mm-hmm. but knowing and this was after a certain person was elected, um president, and so we know that. And so that's my contention, but as I said, I wouldn't testify in court. Well, it could have been one of those. Precision, it could have been a. It could have been one, a, one of those precision, precision tree limbs. Yeah, it could have been. Could have been. <laughs> um, are there some things for those of us who don't know the history of education, compulsory education, African American or Black or so-called colored schools? Are there some one, two, three, four, five? facts that we should all kind of know that really create that um, help us be literate and informed Americans, right? I I know that one of your contentions is black history is American history. So, so many of us do not know even the depth of the contribution that black educators have made to what you said, a universal American education system. Mm -hmm. So what are some key takeaways for us to, you know, three or five facts that when we're with our families next week, we can say, did you know? Well, you would start with the fact of what you just mentioned is that universal education system in the South. Mm -hmm because that is the foundation of our public education system. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I think that is number one. But number, well, I don't know if there is, should be numbered at all. Right, right. I, because they're all but, so very important. Yeah. Another important initiative was just how much sweat, blood, sweat, and mm-hmm. tears blacks put into building an educational system. For example, I didn't mention the third pillar because I always get off track. <laughs> The Sabbath schools, the Freedman schools, and the Rosenwald schools. Rosenwald. Rosenwald was a a Jewish philanthropist and also the president of Sears and Roebuck, the founder of Sears and Roebuck. And Booker T. Washington, who had a lot of white allies, actually went to him and said, you know, help me build some schools in the South. Booker T. Washington believed that blood, but black people, I sometimes say bloods for my husband, (laughs) (laughs) that they should stay in the South and be educated, not go up North and try to get up in these white ways. So Julius uh, Rosenwald actually gave the seed money for a lot of these schools that were in the rural South, Mm-hmm. But blacks had to, they had certain conditions. He would put in some money for perhaps the land, but then blacks had to raise all the other money. 
and they would have, you know, they would sell chicken dinners and, you know, they would do all say, kinds of things, sweet potato pies and all. To, and they had to supply all the labor, all the labor. So they built, I, I forget the exact number of schools, but hundreds of these schools. They were mm-hmm. serious. They were serious. Mm-hmm. They were small, oftentimes one room, mm-hmm. you know, one mm-hmm. large room. But they did it themselves. I mean, with some help from Rosen, Rosenwald. So that's very important to know. Well, we only have two minutes left, but I got one more question I have to get in there. Okay. Um, when the first few waves of uh, black kids graduated from those colored schools, were their diplomas or certificates or whatever they got, were they accepted at... Mm-hmm. at uh, um, what what did I call it? The white colleges or higher institutions of learning? Well, most of the college schools were actually elementary okay, schools. Okay, okay. Mm. And so, like in Bloomington, once they graduated from elementary school, they could go into the white, quote-unquote, high schools. Okay. So there were no colored high schools. No colored in high fact, schools. For, in fact, in most of the South, the highest grade level for the black schools were eighth grade. So it was only through many years of agitation. The white schools in the South had, you know, 10 or 11 or 12 grades. But uh, one of the quotes that I came about was saying that eight grades is enough for a Negro, and the word was not Negro. So that's Mm. why Mm. you just cleared something up for Mm. me. That's why I hear about so many of my ancestors, because I I do a lot of research on my family tree. That's why I hear about so many of them who only made it to the eighth grade. Because that was all that was offered. I did not know that. Thank you for uh, mm-hmm. enlightening me. So, wow. Dr. McCluskey, we have, we're down to less than a minute. Is there anything else that you want to leave us with that we did not talk about? You maybe feel compelled to enlighten us again. We have covered a whole lot. But I think that the <laughs> thing that I want to leave is that black people have not been dependent people. Mm. They have been proactive agents of their own change and their progress. And nothing reveals that more than their strive for education. Okay. What's the name of the book one more time, Roberta? Uh, Thank you, Dr. McCluskey. The name of uh, the book that's out on paperback, it's the hardcover has been out for a bit here, but the paperback version is available, and it's a great little Christmas stuffer. <laughs> uh, a forgotten that was good. That was good. <laughs> a forgotten sisterhood, pioneering <laughs> Black women educators and activists in the Jim Crow South. If you don't know much about these one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight incredible women, um, Black women, uh, you need to get to know them. And uh, you can do that with Dr. McCluskey's book, A Forgotten Sisterhood. Okay. Our thanks to noted Indiana University Administrator, Academic, and Emeritus Faculty Member, Dr. Audrey McCluskey, for joining us to provide scholarly insight into the emergence of the colored schools in America. Bring It On has an open submission policy. So if you have an idea for this program, let's hear it. Send an email to our volunteer staff. The address is bringiton at wfhb.org. Again, that's bringiton at wfhb.org. We want to make sure that we're including anything and everything impacting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. The email address, once again, is bringiton at wfhb.org.
Support for WFHB comes from Hopscotch Coffee with over 15 types of hot teas and a rotating selection of iced teas. Hopscotch offers cafe seating at the Beeline and Dodds and a to-go bar inside their new rotisserie at 212 North Madison Street. And I bring you back to bring it on. You just heard I'll Be There by Tim Bowman from the Love, Joy, Peace Project. Bowman is a smooth jazz gospel musician, and this CD was his debut project in 1996. I like that one. To keep up with local news and find out what's happening behind the scenes at WFHB, we invite you to like the WFHB Facebook page. Go to Facebook.com and search for WFHB, or you can always visit our news website at WFHB.org slash news. Bring It On is Indiana's only public affairs program dedicated to the African-American community here on WFHB on 91.3 FM and live on the web at WFHB.org. For Bring It On, I'm Roberta Radovich. I'm William Hosea. It's time now that we give you the latest perspective on people, news, and issues impacting the black community. For Bring It On, I'm Roberta Radovich. I'm still William Hosea. (laughs) And uh, starting off, did the NFL just buy off protesters? We read this from Perry Green, the Afro sports editor. The NFL has agreed to donate $89 million over seven years to social reform projects including criminal justice reform, law enforcement reform, and education reform, according to ESPN. The deal was announced to the media by Philadelphia Eagles safety Malcolm Jenkins, who also serves as co-founder of the Players Coalition, a group of active NFL players who have joined together to protest for civil and social reform. Jenkins described the NFL's pledge as a platform and a campaign similar to what they've done with breast cancer awareness. My cause, my cleats, salute to service, but hopefully in an even bigger manner. Jenkins told reporters he will no longer protest during the national anthem now that the NFL has agreed to its pledge. All of this really is in good faith, Jenkins said, according to ESPN. And I think if the league continues to come through or deliver on their word, then I see no need to go back to what I was doing. But others would argue otherwise, calling this move by the league nothing more than a cheap negotiating tactic to get players to sell out on what they've been protesting for. Nearly 40 players among the coalition disapprove of the deal, according to the Chicago Tribune. San Francisco safety Eric Reed recently told the media he and a few colleagues broke away from the coalition because they felt Jenkins was negotiating bad deals on behalf of players without the group's full approval. The NFL later announced its pledge to social reform comes with no expectation of a quid uh, quid pro quo, and the league also claimed no money would be pulled from older programs to fund the new programs. But it's hard to ignore concerns from people who are close to the situation like Reed. He apparently believes the NFL may be trying to buy off protesters on a deal that will only cost them roughly. That will only cost them roughly $13 million per year for seven years. 
hush money in its purest form, and no matter how much the NFL may deny it, it looks more and more like Reed is right. Um, you know, one thing I find interesting is Colin Kaepernick was not included in those negotiations, and he started it all. But uh, another thing I think... Uh, that protest was never about the NFL. Right. So why does Reed think that they need, not Reed, who was the other gentleman, uh, the other guy? Yeah. Anyway, why does he think that they need to stop? They weren't protesting against the NFL. They were protesting against social injustice. Right. But that is, that's a paradigm shift. I mean, okay, we're moving on here. Iowa radio workers fired for racial remarks about athletes. So in Des Moines, Iowa, a northern Iowa radio station has fired a sports announcer and an elementary school teacher who works as a board operator for the station for racial comments about high school basketball players during an online game broadcast. KIMT-TV reports that announcer Oren Harris confirmed he was fired Monday from Forest City Radio Station KIOW. The station manager for KIOW, Carl Woodridge, confirmed that the two employees were fired on Monday. The Forest City School District says it placed teacher Holly Jane Kusro-Smith, who works as a KIOW board operator, on administrative leave. The Associated Press could not immediately reach Harris or Kusro Schmidt for comment. In a video of last Tuesday's game between Forest City and Eagle Grove, Harris refers to Eagle Grove boys he believes to be Hispanic because of their names as quote-unquote foreigners and says that they should go back to where they came from. Whoa. Uh, Kessero Smith uh, is put on administrative leave because she was uh, on the video laughing and agreeing. Well, Billy Bush lost his job for laughing and agreeing. So we do have we have one more here. Uh, our our good friend Colin Kaepernick, honored with uh, by ACLU with an advocacy award. Some some good news for Kaepernick here. Uh, from the sporting news, from the sporting news, we read that less than a month after being honored by GQ as a citizen of the year, uh, Colin Kaepernick has earned another award for his work on social justice issues. The ACLU honored Kaepernick on Sunday at the organization's annual Bill of Rights dinner in Beverly Hills, giving him the Eason Monroe Courageous Advocate Award. Although the former San Francisco 49ers quarterback began his national anthem protests in 2016, he earned more recognition from them this season, even though he's not currently in the league. Those protests have become a political flashpoint between President Donald Trump, athletes and progressive groups with conservative with conservatives heavily opposed to the protests. According to the Los Angeles Times, Kaepernick's appearance at the ceremony and at the ward were a big surprise to the audience. He received a standing ovation. Hector uh, Viagra, Vilgra, excuse me, I am so sorry. Don't mention it. Executive director of the ACLU of Southern California, please do not let him know. <laughs> he praised Kaepernick 
for taking a stand. Uh, he he has lost his job, uh, Hector says, one that he's loved and was supremely talented and skilled at. Uh, he took a stand knowing that some would criticize him and he has been viciously and unfairly criticized. He has been called a traitor because too many people in this country confuse dissent for disloyalty. I would agree with that. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Okay, so that was a look um, at African-American headlines and news on uh, from around the world this week. Tune, again, tune in again next week for the latest news on and for the African-American community. We want to know what you think of current black issues. Send your comments to bringiton at wfhb.org. WFHB.org. For Bring It On, I'm Roberta Radovich. I'm William Hosea, and you are listening to Bring It On, Indiana's only public affairs program dedicated to the African-American community. Here on WFHB 91.3 FM on your radio and live on the web at WFHB.org.
Support for WFHB is brought to you by Mother Bear's Pizza, located on the east side of Bloomington at 1428 East 3rd Street and on the west side at 2980 West Whitehall Crossing Boulevard. Serving pizza, subs, pasta, wings, beer, and wine since 1973. Hours and more information at motherbearspizza.com. And I bring you back to Bring It On. You just heard Go That Extra Mile, another selection from Tim Bowman's 1996 debut CD, Love, Joy, Peace. It's time to bring you the events of interest in the black community for Bring It On. I'm William Hosea. And I'm Roberta Radovich. So starting off, we have two free mentoring programs to tell you about. The Delta Academy and Delta Gems are free mentoring programs for young African-American ladies ages 11 to 18, sponsored by the Delta Sigma Theta Sorority, Inc., Bloomington Alumni Chapter. The kickoff event was on September 30th. For more information about the Delta Academy and Delta Gems, email Delta Academy BAC at gmail.com. Also, homework help is available at Bethel AME Church as they host free homework help every Wednesday from 6 to 7.30 p.m. Students will receive tutoring from IU graduate and professional students. The church address is 302 North Rogers Street, and for more information, contact Bethel Homework Help at gmail.com. If you're looking for a little live music, the Dynamics will be playing at the Players Club on Saturday, December 16th. Uh, The Players Club is at 424 South Walnut Street. Uh, The cover is just $8 and the show starts at 830. If you like a little R&B mixed in with some other uh, covers, uh, you'll, you'll enjoy the Dynamics. Uh, my, my clubbing days are over, so I've never heard the dynamics, but I, I've heard good things about them. So if you have an event or happening the African-American community should know about, please send that info directly to the Bring It On staff. Or if you want additional information about a calendar item that you've heard tonight, you can contact us at bringiton at wfhb.org. Our thanks to noted Indiana University Administrator, Academic, Emeritus Faculty Member, uh, Dr. Audrey McCluskey, for joining us to provide scholarly insight into the emergence of the colored schools in America. Our show's producer is Clarence Boone, with help from WFHB News Department Director Wes Martin. Our board engineer is Kirsten Payton. Our original theme music was created by Jamil Effiam with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I am William Hosea. And I'm Roberta Radovich. Tune in next Monday, December 11th at 6 p.m. for another exciting edition of Bring It On right here on your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. 
The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.